Turn with me to Matthew 28. And verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 16. And verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has believed, uh, not, who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they'll cast out demons, they'll speak with new tongues, they'll pick up serpents, and if they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Turn with me to the end of Luke's gospel. I think you know where I'm going here. Verse 46 of chapter 24. And he said to them, Thus it's written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of the Father upon you, but you're to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. I'm not going to read the end of John's Gospel. Last week we commenced by considering the challenges of sharing our faith, and we looked at how Jesus made known the good news, specifically to the woman at the well. And this week I want to consider the approach of the early church. How did they do it? Um, This is going to be a bit of a teach this morning, so if you're not up for teaching, the door's over there, (laughs) because that's all I can do, I'm afraid. Um, No. But we'll consider the approach of the early church. How did they follow through what Jesus had asked them to do? How did they make known this good news? How were they witnesses? How did they preach? How did they take the message that they had received so that it became a worldwide phenomenon? The gospel leave us in no doubt of the fact that when Jesus had risen from the dead, he expected the disciples to carry on the work he began. We've just seen that. Matthew's gospel ends with the injunction to go and make disciples and the emphasis, the important word there is go. And if you read it in the Greek, it's go. And when you're going, make disciples. And when you're going, teach them. And when you're going, it's the whole emphasis is go. Go and do something. Don't stay. Go. Um, Mark's gospel ends with the instruction go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Luke's gospel ends with Jesus telling the disciples that they will be witnesses of his death and resurrection. We'll come back to that term later on in, the t- in, the, in this morning. And he told them to ensure they wait until they were endued with power from on high. John's gospel, which we didn't read, ends with a recommissioning of Peter to care for the church that would follow from their, their going and a promise that Jesus would soon return. See, the church was never meant to be a small Jewish sect at one end of the Mediterranean. It was always intended by God to be a worldwide phenomena, bringing the good news of salvation, the redemption of God, the promise of restoration in relationship to him, to the ends of the earth. It wasn't supposed to happen in one corner of the earth. And even though the disciples didn't quite get that at first, and they stayed in Jerusalem until God stirred them up, 
Nevertheless, that was never the intention. The intention that Jesus left them with was to go. To go and spread this good news. To make known what they had received. To make known what they had witnessed. And to take it to the ends of the earth. And over the, the centuries, this has been fulfilled in fits and starts. Initially, the expansion was quite rapid. So that by the end of the 7th century, this good news had gone to India, to China, to the Middle East, to North Africa, and to Europe. However, from there, the spread became fairly stilted until the 16th century. Do you know who the first people were to start properly evangelizing? Anyone? Right, all those who were on the first week of my course. (laughs) No, it was actually the Jesuits. They were the first proper missionaries to go to new places. Um, They went to Japan and China and they took a whole new different approach in terms of how to shape and form the gospel so that it would be acceptable in the culture into which they went. So they were the missionary arm of the Catholic Church. It took us Protestants a couple of hundred years to catch up. And then there were firstly the Moravians who went out. Anyone heard of the Moravians? They were a, bunch, a group in, in a, based in a place uh, called, uh, I've forgotten the place, but the Count, Count Zinzendorf in uh, basically in Moravia. Yeah. <laughs> and they had this, this house. He set up this community and they had a hundred year prayer meeting, night and day for a hundred years. Should we start one? And out from there, they sent missionaries that went across the world. One of the key people for this country that was saved as a result of the Moravian mission was John Wesley. And we have much heritage as a result of that happening. Um, But then the Protestants caught up in the 18th and 19th century, in the 20th century, and began to send missionaries everywhere. Until finally we arrive at a position where the gospel has gone to every nation although not necessarily to every people, group, or language. Interestingly enough, if you read in Matthew 24, Jesus said, the end will come when the gospel's gone to every nation. What does that tell us? I'll leave that with you. But it hasn't quite yet gone to all people groups and all languages, so there's a little room still to to work on. (laughs) So having having tracked that very brief overview of church history... How did it start? How did the apostles do it? Well, there are two things we have to consider here. Firstly, the social and religious context. And secondly, the mode of communication into which they were communicating this message. Of course, if you look in your Bible, and we we won't go to many more scriptures, actually. You can actually just take notes. Um, The first preaching took place in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost. And you can read about it in Acts 2. What happened there? This was not the normative form of preaching um, for the New Testament church. Rather, it was a unique occasion resulting from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the supernatural phenomenon drawing a crowd in, in around the upper room. So as the Holy Spirit fell, people were speaking in tongues and they were prophesying and they couldn't stay in the house. They sort of burst out into the streets and everybody could hear them speaking in their own languages and languages they'd never heard of. And that drew a crowd. And so Peter takes the opportunity where there's a crowd, there's an opportunity for preaching. He stands up and he delivers a message. And 3,000 people are saved. Do you think that happened every day of the week in the early church? 
No. It was a one-off individual phenomena which launched the church. Then in Acts 3, you see Peter and John going up to the beautiful gate and they see the man lame that Jesus must have passed hundreds of times before and they, silver and gold, have I none, but such as I give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And they heal him. And it gathers a crowd. People come, Peter preaches, people get saved. So there is these instances throughout the New Testament, throughout the, the, the book of Acts, where there are sim- similar supernatural events providing a backdrop for preaching. But this was not normative. This is not the normative pattern that we find as we read through the book of Acts. Rather, it's a, a very different kind of preaching than perhaps you've ever, we've ever understood or grasped. And it's more, the more normative form of preaching you'll find in Acts chapter 6. What you find there is that um, Stephen had been debating in a synagogue with some of the Jewish, um, Jewish not believers, Jewish, Jewish people, that'll do. Um, He'd been debating with them and they fell out with him because they didn't like the message, the fact that he was trying to say that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they ended up stoning him. Um, not perhaps the best thing to do when you were trying to debate the gospel, but it happens. But that's what, it, what the, the normal pattern was, that they would go into a synagogue, that they would find people where, who had faith in God. They would find people who knew the scriptures, who were waiting for the Messiah. And the task of the early preachers, in the, as we read through the book of Acts, was simply to persuade them, people who already knew about God, who already knew, knew the scriptures, to persuade them that actually Jesus was the one they were waiting for, that Jesus was the Messiah. And that brought them to faith. And as we see in Acts 7, this was a fairly, as, the, as Stephen gets stoned, this was a fairly contentious approach. However, what's clear to understand is the preaching wasn't into a vacuum. It wasn't just going out onto the streets and preaching to anybody who would listen. It was preaching to people who were already had some knowledge and understanding of what they were saying. That's how they started doing it. Going to people who already knew something of what they were sharing as a context that then they could speak into. People were, who were open to debate and discussion. People who weren't just unbelievers somewhere out there who had never ever heard anything. They were going initially to people who had already had some idea of what they were talking about. Similarly, with Philip the evangelist in Acts 8, we see him going, where? To the Samaritans, who were half-breed Jews, basically, who knew the Torah, knew it pretty well, knew the first five books of the Bible, and who were waiting for the Messiah. And then, and so they weren't um, strangers to the gospel. They knew, and so Philip went to them, and persuaded them that actually the one they were waiting for was also Jesus. And then we see Philip going to an Ethiopian Jew who's traveling home, having come up to the temple, and he's in his chariot bouncing along, trying to read the book of Isaiah like this. Um, Do you know what you're reading? No! Um, And Philip jumps up in the chariot with him and explains it all to him. But again, it's not into a vacuum. It's to somebody who has some level of understanding or openness to listen and hear and have things explained to him. When the gospel came to to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, who was it first opened up to? A man who already had faith in God but was looking for something more. 
throughout the remainder of Acts, we see Paul going first to the synagogue to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah before taking out with him those who had believed, as well as God-fearing Gentiles, and starting a church with this group in someone's home. We see very little street evangelism, street preaching, even from Paul. There were a few exceptions to this. In Lystra, in Acts 14, we see Paul begin his ministry with a supernatural healing. So once more, we see him heal somebody, draw a crowd, and start preaching. In Philippi, Paul didn't go to the synagogue, or not that we're told. He went to a place outside the city where women gathered for prayer, and there he began to chat with them. He led Lydia to faith, and she became instrumental in the church there. And it's believed that the church met in her home. In Athens, where did Paul go? The Areopagus. The Areopagus. What was that then? Well, it's the marketplace. But it was basically a place where people used to gather to debate philosophy philosophy, and talk about ideas and to to hear the latest truth that that somebody was propagating. Again, Paul doesn't go into a vacuum. He goes to people who are willing to talk and debate and listen and and challenge and, and, and talk about this stuff. In Ephesus, having preached in the synagogue and also having found some believers there, what did he do? He held daily lectures in the debating hall of Tyrannus. Now, the debating hall of Tyrannus would have been a lecture hall where they would have talked about philosophy. And it said in one of the manuscripts that Paul then hired it from 11 till 4. So, Tyrannus would have it uh, 7 till 11 and debate whatever philosophy. Then Paul came in and he'd debate Christianity with anybody who wanted to come. And it was a debating chamber. And Paul, of course, did it through the heat of the day when everyone else was asleep. So he was pretty determined to do it. And this would have been um, his method of of debating um, to to actually drive out and to challenge and to talk about the truth and to get people to to come on his side and, and to understand what he was saying about Jesus. And throughout his ministry, Paul usually based himself in, in, in a place, in a, in a house to do his work. In Philippi, Paul worked with, from Lydia's house. In Thessalonica, it seems he operated from Jason's home. In Athens, he used the marketplace in the Areopagus, probably because the few believers who may not have owned a suit there may not have owned a suitable place for public discussion. However, when he arrived in Corinth, he used the residence of justice, which seems to have been had a common wall. It was next door to the synagogue, so I bet he was popular doing that. From that short study, we can see two things. Firstly, that the the apostles went generally to those with whom they had a chance of succeeding. They went generally to to people to whom they had a chance of succeeding. People, People who had some faith, who knew the scriptures, or were hungry, or wanting to listen to truth. They didn't just go out to people who were going to have an argument with them and go away fruitless. They went to people who were ready and willing and open to listen. Where there'd been an opening, where there'd been some understanding, some education, some desire to seek truth. People who had some faith who knew the scriptures, or those who wanted to listen. Secondly, we also know that most of their work was done through debate and persuasion rather than through the one-way dialogue of a street preacher. 
They talked. They gave chance for opportunity, for feedback, for discussion, for debate, even if they fell out, as Stephen did. They were not looking for an emotional response to four points. Rather, through persuasion, dialogue and teaching, as well as through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were seeking not just to make converts, but what did Jesus tell them to do? Make disciples. And therefore, teaching was at the heart of what they were doing when they were preaching. They didn't want just immediate responses, but rather helping people to make a life choice, exchanging one understanding of spiritual truth for another, exchanging one set of values for another, exchanging one set of causes for a greater cause. Because those who stick are those who don't just make an emotional response in the midst of a meeting. Occasionally they do. It's thought that about a maximum 5% of people who respond in meetings ever go on. But people who stick are those who actually make a lifestyle choice and a choice to exchange where they've been for a new way of being. And that's what the disciples, the apostles, were all about doing. Persuading, drawing people in so that they would make a new lifestyle choice. And this raises serious questions about the buckshot approach to evangelism. Let's just shoot with a big 12-bore shotgun, preferably sawn off at the nozzle and so that we can see how many people we can hit. And see if anybody responds. That's not to say that some will not respond to such an approach. And I don't want to undermine the people of those who are specifically called to go to new people groups. You know, the likes of Jackie Pullinger going to the triads in in Hong Kong. David Wilkerson going to the gangs in New York. There is a calling and there is the gift of an evangelist, people who can go and do that. But that's not the calling for all of us. And neither is it necessarily where God wants, to make, God wants us or will make us effective to be. By far, the greatest effect is talking to those we know, those we have a relationship with, those who are open to hear what we have to say. People who are receptive... So having established these communities of faith throughout the Roman Empire, the apostles took up an itinerant role of supporting, encouraging and teaching the churches that they'd formed. But further outreach, most of the outreach, took place through church members going about their daily lives and sharing their faith. This is a quote that Michael Green, anyone heard of Michael Green? He's a a teacher and written many books on on different subjects. He wrote a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. But he quotes a guy called Kenneth Scott Latourette, who wrote a book in 1937 called The Five Centuries. And this quote is from this. And he said this, The chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession or made made it a major part of their occupation, but men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. Any study of the New Testament church says it didn't spread just because the apostles went out preaching. They might have formed churches out of people and and had, had rapid success in places. But most of the spread across the Roman Empire of the day and across the world happened because people like you and me 
It went about our daily jobs and talked to the people and drew them into faith and drew them into the church and drew them into a commitment by taking time to, to share their faith, to witness to what God had done and to talk about all that God meant to them in their lives. That's not me saying that. That's somebody who's researched this over many years. Faith was primarily spread through people gossiping the gospel, not just through the preaching of the word. So preaching with a small p suddenly becomes all of our responsibility. Of course, God raises up evangelists who have special gift to make Jesus known to unbelievers. But that does not undermine or take away from the fact that none of us is exempt from mission. I said we'd come back to that word witnesses. The injunction in Luke's gospel to the apostles and also reiterated in Acts 1.8 was that the, the disciples were to be witnesses. They were to speak of what they had seen and what they had felt and what they had understood. And as Acts develops, all, others also are spoken of as witnesses such as Stephen and Paul. Witnessing thus moves from being account, an account of what you've seen to being a, an account of, what, of the truth God has revealed and the change that it's brought in the life of the believer. And in this sense, we can all be witnesses. All who have responded to the good news have a testimony to which we can bear witness. The testimony is not just what God did for us 10, 20, 30, 40, perhaps 50 years ago, but it's what he's doing in our lives now, today. It's the testimony of the grace of God at work within us. And as I said last week, your testimony cannot be refuted because it's your truth. It's what God has done and is doing for you personally. Now, one more thing about that word witness. The word in the Greek is the, is the word martyrio, from which we get our English word martyr. There is a cost with witnessing. For some, it costs them their life. Even as we speak, there's a lady called Asia Bibi in Pakistan. Have you heard that name? She's awaiting the death sentence for being a Christian. It's gone to the high court in Pakistan, and they've affirmed that she will get the death sentence. We can sign a petition. We can raise and there are petitions online if you just want to go and have a search and find them, in the hope that the international community will persuade the government of Pakistan not to kill her for her faith. And yet that's just one person, and we know that many are suffering for their faith all around the world. There are those in Syria, there are those in Iraq, there are those in Africa, many places. And we should pray for them. But it's also a lesson to us that if we want, if this truth means anything, it's worth suffering for. Because it's worth making it known to other people who need to hear the truth that there is only hope in God. So if you haven't signed the online petition for Asia Bibi, please seek it out and do so. And being a witness for Christ may cost us something, even everything. In this country, it may cost us our pride, our reputation, even our job. But thankfully, thankfully at present, nothing worse. But making known the good news that in Christ Jesus, people have a way back to God, a means of forgiveness, 
healing and restoration, and a hope for the future. That has to be worth sharing. It has to be worth paying the price for. And the question for us is, what price are we prepared to see others come into the kingdom? So as I conclude, let me just summarize. The New Testament imperative is that those who know must tell. The apostles went primarily to those they knew they had a chance of succeeding with. They didn't waste time and resources taking a buckshot approach and hoping something would hit home. Whilst the apostles did most of the initial work, by far the greatest means of the gospel spreading was through the lives of individual Christians who lived authentically and shared their faith with those they rubbed shoulders with. Nothing has changed. And finally, we are all called to be witnesses, not to some theoretical truth, but to the reality of what God has done in our lives. As we go out this week, let's look for the opportunity to share with those who need to hear. Pray for opportunities. Ask the Holy Spirit to open up opportunities. And then share authentically out of all that God has done. Who knows what God will do, even from your mouth. It doesn't take, or my mouth, it doesn't take a big evangelist. It just takes us to share what we have done. Because those who know must tell. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great message that you have given us, that in your son there is salvation, there is wholeness, there is healing, there is hope. And I pray, Lord God, we might be those as a people who live authentically out of what you've done and are willing to share that which you've placed and that which you've given to us. Lord God, by your spirit lead us, we pray. Open up opportunities and may we take them. In Jesus' name, amen.